Happy Wednesday, my dear friends. Welcome. This is Jill and K9360 here on KZUM. I am glad to be back with you after a kind of amazing week last week. Um, I attended and presented at a conference in Lexington, Kentucky called Living with Animals. And I met some amazing colleagues there. Uh, other people who are studying uh, and thinking about everything from reptiles to worms, but mostly dogs and horses. And uh, not a coincidence that we were in horse country, right? Central Kentucky and um, hosted by the exceptional folks at Eastern Kentucky University. So I came back to you with lots to share uh, so if the next couple of programs are kind of sciencey, bear with me. I will try to make everything relevant and accessible uh, as we talk. So one of the other presenters uh, happens to be an expert, a, a fellow, if you will, a researcher who works with an organization that we should all be familiar with if we're not already called the National Canine Research Council. The National Canine Research Council is something you can find online by simply typing in National Canine Research Council. And it is a nonprofit canine behavior science and policy think tank. So if you were ever confused about the occasional claims or conversations that we might be having here on K9360 having to do with um, the science of dog ownership, the politics of dog ownership, the legal landscape for all of us as dog owners. The K9 Research Council is a really good place, a really good resource and a place for you to go and find stuff. Their mission, this is from their website, is to underwrite, conduct, and disseminate academically rigorous research that studies dogs in the context of human society. Sound familiar, right? They advocate innovative and practical canine policy. And I think you'll find a lot there that will challenge you. I do every time I, I go back. Um, they have research articles featuring empirically verified data research that embodies the principle that dog must, dogs must be considered in relation to humans. That's the domestic part. They want to remove barriers, any barriers that exist to safe and humane pet ownership. And they are um, supported by a set of leading experts in the field, one of whom I met in Lexington, and we have plans for her to be a guest on the program here um, in coming weeks. So uh, one of my favorite spots on the site, National Canine Research Council, is Evidence-Based Canine Genome and Behavior Research Library. And it looks in depth at the uh, relationship between the genetic and social structures of the dog and their behavior in society 
right? Evidence-based information that affects dogs and the people that care for them. So what I want to share with you this evening is uh, a little bit of information that you can also find if you go to the Canine Research Council, their director of research. Uh, let me get her name right. So I look through here. Her name is Janice. What's her last name? Janice Bradley. Janice Bradley is the director of research, and she uh, also edits the newsletter, which you can sign up for if you're willing to give your email address. And uh, we'll just hit some highlights here today. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, maybe your curiosity or your interest will be piqued enough that you will find your way to the website and uh, uncover some interesting insights there. So one of the topics that they are really examining right now, and this was a conversation that I had with Cynthia, one of the experts that um, one of the people I met at the conference in Kentucky. And um, we talked about it while we were there and present at, uh, at Eastern Kentucky University, but our conversation continued on the ride to the airport. And uh, we actually had the good fortune to be on the same plane. And so had a chance to continue to talk about the persistent popular belief that there are meaningful behavioral differences between dog breeds and that you might learn something about an individual dog, something like how smart or trainable or aggressive or energetic he is simply by knowing his breed. What breed is your dog is a question that we get all the time, right? You get that question. People on the street, what kind of dog is that? Which breed is right for you are the kinds of clickbait, right? Those online quizzes on social media. More clickbait headlines are things like the top 10 smartest breeds. And breed stereotypes resonate for people. And when researchers claim to have substantiated them, however tentatively, the public policy results can be pretty awful for dogs. At the canine, I'm sorry, at the National Canine Research Council, scientific attempts to demonstrate such differences have been fraught with difficulties. And there's a lot of research on the site to suggest the same. Their newsletter suggests that always in our review process, we do not attempt to review every paper on the topic, uh, the volume of which would lead inevitably to analyses too brief to have much depth but rather have confined themselves to studies that either meet a methodological gold standard in this area or are frequently cited in the literature and therefore have had a wide influence. They also include the occasional study that takes on a unique perspective. Uh, for example, a look at Dr. Nathaniel Hall's work, which found that pugs outperform German shepherds on an aptitude for scent work. Right? I told you you would find things there that would surprise you. The review uh, at K National Canine Research Council has revealed no findings of breed based on behavioral differences that successfully overcome all the difficulties presented by the question. One major difficulty is the established unreliability of visual breed identification, extending all the way to lack of agreement about what is meant by the term breed 
to begin with. This results not only in misidentifying purebred dogs, but in miscategorizing mixed breed dogs as purebreds. And that renders useless any study based on undocumented reports of breed. In other words, what they're saying there is that you cannot tell what kind of dog you have simply by looking at it, especially if your dog is a mixed breed dog. You cannot tell. And I would challenge you to go and look at the National Canine Research Council's extensive documentation of that problem with visual identification. Um, The photographs in the research that's on the website come from sort of the seminal work, which is genetics and the social behavior of the dog. That's the Scott and Fuller um, research done in the late 1950s. Then there's the relative impossibility of unraveling the environmental from the genetic factors that determine behavior. In addition to the unknowable role of breed-based owner expectations, husbandry decisions, and perceptions of behavior influencing reports or observations of behavior. Given these issues and many more, it is unsurprising that findings have been extremely inconsistent regarding popular and breed cub beliefs about the historical function of various breeds among modern dogs, even purebreds, and those studies that find differences of any kind between breeds usually find larger differences within breeds. And I think there's some research done by James Serpell a few years ago that talks about that too. So all of this should give us reason to reflect on the practical value of the research. Reflecting on the... uh, Descriptions composed by breed clubs or the colorful names of our dog's grandparents may be entertaining, but they have the predictive value of a horoscope. It's really the individual dog that we love, and they pretty much tell us everything we need to know about the unique bond that we have with them. Right? I get lots of dogs in my training practice where People say, well, he's a sheep-a-doodle, and that's why he's chasing the children. Yeah, no. Most dogs will chase running children. (laughs) Dalmatians, terriers, doesn't matter. If the kids run, the dog will chase. And uh, we really only see herding or herding-like behavior in the presence of livestock, right? Anything else is just kind of generic pattern of dog behavior. And we'll talk about behavior patterns here, action patterns. What is an action pattern? Chasing running children is an action pattern. So let's talk about yawning for a minute. It wouldn't surprise anyone if reading that sentence gave you an urge to yawn, right? I'm fighting the uh, urge to yawn just talking to you about yawning. It might take watching or listening to someone yawn to trigger the urge. Lots of dogs do this too. Not the reading about it version, but seeing another dog or a person yawn and react in the same way with their own jaw-stretching action. That kind of response is called an action pattern. It's a simple, reflective act triggered by a particular stimulus. It doesn't have to be learned, although learning can sometimes modify the expression, if not the impulse. Dogs, like many animals, have a pretty extensive repertoire of these action patterns many originating from their wolf ancestors and how their wolf ancestors made their living. 
that would be predation, right? So if you, pretend you're a wolf, if you string together a series of simple action patterns, which one triggers the next, they will include following scents, stalking, orienting toward the prey, freezing so as not to alert the prey, chasing, grabbing, and biting. Then that's how you end up with your lunch, right? You don't have to think about when to do what. You can get better at these patterns with practice. And for some animals, watching how their elders do things can help a lot too. Probably quite early in our cohabitation with the dogs that are now our best friends, people noticed these action patterns and began to sort them into specialties. People began to group dogs for breeding according to which ones seemed the keenest on following scent and they became our sporting dogs, our hunting guides or stalking and freezing and those dogs became the pointers or the setters or chasing, stalking and maybe a little bit of grabbing and these dogs became herding dogs and so on. We've known about this for a long time but there's a new genetic study how that domestic dog lineages revealed genetic drivers of behavioral diversification led by a woman named Emily Dutro. And it has backtracked the ancestral history of 4,000 dogs and discovered that it's possible to sort dogs into general lineages according to the kind of action pattern they've specialized in, right? This is stuff that dog breeders know a lot about. Researchers identified some genes that may relate to those specific conditions, and they've discovered that most of the DNA is what's called non-coding, which means that they don't control the production of proteins. Uh, geneticists once classified those as junk DNA, but we now know they serve a regulatory function. So as it turns out, again, this is all according to research on the National Canine Research Council website. Turns out that non-coding DNA has a crucial role in how or even whether genes are actually expressed. So if you think of them like fine-tuning switches, um, as Kathleen Morrill explained it, she was the first author of a recent paradigm-shifting study of canine behavioral genetics. So in Dutro's paper, the groupings of dogs by ancestral occupation are similar to the ones already reported in previous research on the relatedness of various breed groups. But Dutro's study uses a different methodology and so confirms this ancient selection process. It suggests that at least some of these pre-breed talents may still be expressed in our modern dogs, even though the intentional selection has been focused on appearance for the brief time since the late 1800s when breeds as we know them began to come into existence. So what does it all mean? Does this mean your scent hound can't learn to retrieve or your sight hound can't learn nose work? Some media interpreters of Dutroux have um, inferred or extrapolated, but that's not the truth. That's not the truth at all. And if you go to the National Canine Council Research Council website, you'll see a video of a greyhound merrily pick out and indicate the box with the birch leaf smell hidden inside. He can do this not because of any particular aptitude on his part, but because he is a dog. And his uh, handler is an accomplished dog trainer who happens to enjoy teaching nose work as a sport. 
One study that uh, might make you smile even found that pugs tested did better than German shepherd dogs on learning this skill. But that's a story perhaps for another day. Um, does it mean that you can infer stuff about the personality of that puppy in the corner, like how gregarious he's like, he'd like to be from his hair trigger dash to every tennis ball that might go flying by? Not really. Because action patterns like retrieving are not personality traits. Let me say that again. Action patterns like retrieving are not personality traits. They're more like reflexes, although that too is an imperfect analogy. Dutro and her co-authors think there might be connections between the regulatory genes they identified and the behaviors that are more complicated than simple action patterns but they collected behavioral data from a different group of dogs than the genetic data, and the survey collected information about pet behavior in daily life, not on ancestral action patterns, so we can't take it as proven. Their hypothesis that the particular genetic variants they found are related to behavior at all is still only a hypothesis. The only research to date that has used the same dogs to compare behaviors relevant to those living with people and genetic relatedness found just very weak links between genetics and those behaviors by breed. See how hard this is, right? We're so used to stereotyping that a golden retriever will act this way or a lab will act that way. But the research found nothing at all linking genetics to propensities towards agonistic behavior uh, stuff that we would generally classify as aggression. In any case, neither research group asserts that anything can be predicted about the personality of an individual dog or his propensity to behave in a certain way in a particular situation from these population-based studies. Nor do they make any claims for the relative role of environmental factors such as life experience in all of this. It is, of course, right? It's fun to dip into the mysteries of why retrievers retrieve and pointers point, imagining the relationships between ancient peoples and their canine companions. But if playing fetch with your dog is your thing and you're worried about whether that cute pup you're considering will be into it too, yeah, we've never met a dog that we couldn't teach to play this game, including some who didn't even follow the trajectory of objects as they rolled by even from the very beginning so you can teach your dog to retrieve it's easier to take a walk in the country with a dog who started out at this level of indifference who would eventually work up to enjoying half a dozen good ball chases before moving on to other entertainments than the one who have never had a fetch lesson in his life and uh, for whom you might have to limit the number of stick chases into the lake for fear that the dog keeps going until they drown themselves, right? And um, both of the dogs described by Janice Bradley in this particular segment, she says, were mutts of unknown ancestry who revealed their unique personalities as they shared their life with her. Okay, one more short thing for us to think about. Again, shared from the National Canine Research Council website. Janice says, the story on NPR reports that the most popular Facebook post on the brief suspension of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine 
couple years ago was not CNN or New York Times or ABC or Fox News. They were all in the top five, but number one was a conspiracy theorist called Anomaly, who describes himself as a news analyst and hip-hop artist. This kind of reliance on wildly unreliable information sources is not limited to high-profile public issues. One of the most commonly cited sources of information on dog bite prevalence is a website called dogsbite.org, the domain of Colleen Lynn, a website designer and self-described divine lady who does fortune-telling, collects newspaper clippings on dog bites, was once bitten by a dog, and who claims that the CDC is under the thumb of something she calls the pit bull conspiracy. Similar to other modern-day conspiracy theories, Lynn and her followers believe a cabal of wealthy and evil elites who, in order to achieve their end goal of harming children, bribe scientists, doctors, and other researchers to claim that the breed is not a factor in dog bite-related incidents. Um, Dogsbite.org, we're told, is nothing more than the QAnon of canine behavior science. Without realizing this, Popular press reporters and social media influencers cite this fact-free website. Academic papers and textbooks on aggression, on dog bites, and on canine behavior routinely go there for information and commentary. Insurance companies and municipalities look to it to but- buttress groundless justification for di- discriminatory policy, all based on undocumented, unreviewed numbers whose sources are shrouded in opacity. Citing someone who amounts to even less than a conspiratorial social media influencer might make sense if concrete research about dog bites was hard to come by, but it's not. The CDC itself tracks dog bite injuries that people have considered serious enough for an emergency room visit, and they've done this for more than 20 years. The information is readily accessible to anyone and comes complete with instant, colorful, graphic representations. A team of specialists ranging from epidemiologists to canine behavior experts produced a comprehensive study of the most shocking and tragic of the events in the category, the vanishingly rare dog bite fatality. Their research analyzed data from exhaustive investigations of every dog bite fatality that occurred in the United States over an entire decade. The verdict from these legitimate sources ranging from the CDC to peer-reviewed work and the foremost relevant journal is clear. Serious injuries are only afflicted by a tiny proportion, one in 12,000 dogs, and fewer than one in two million dog bites severely enough to cause a human death. It's as transparent a case as one can find. I've not much to see here, folks. And again, the information is readily available. We can do better than consulting a fortune teller. But it's not unreasonable to put the burden of checking our sources of information used in popular or academic publications on the consumer, the end reader. People looking for general information don't have that kind of time, and it's the job of reporters to vet what they cite for credibility and legitimacy. And certainly the job of researchers writing for academic journals and those who review them to do so as well. Both can do better than falling down a QAnon-esque rabbit hole of misinformation. And that is a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of all the good stuff that awaits you if you spend a little bit of time looking around if you want to know more. National Canine Research Council. 
quick Google search. I'll take you right to it. Nonprofit Canine Behavior Science and Policy Think Tank. There's some really, really amazing, helpful, relevant, useful, and challenging reports there on everything from dog bites to uh, uh, shelter medicine, um, shelter policy. Um, that's exhaustive. It's uh, definitely a place you can go to and spend a lot of time if you are so inclined and if you are the sort of person who wants to inform yourself about what the latest data really is and what the latest research really is. Um, again, they advocate innovative and practical canine policy. They attempt to remove barriers to safe and humane pet ownership and they are curated and sustained in that effort with the help of leading experts in the field, um, all of whose names you can see and pictures and stories about the projects that they are involved in. And I, as I said at the top of the program, hoping to have uh, one of them join us here on K9360 in coming weeks. So I think that's just about our time together today. I, you know, I used to joke with C Sheila Stratton when she was still doing the joy factor here on KZUM that a half an hour is simply not enough time to make any real trouble. <laughs> so we've uh, started to scratch the surface and um, come on back around next week. Join us here. We'll make a little bit more trouble by digging deeper into the scientific and empirical evidence in the form of resources available on the website, National Canine Research Council. And uh, we'll get even more science -y next week. Digging in. Digging into what we can find there. In the meantime, thanks for hanging out with us. We're always glad you're here. Always, always so glad for our listeners at KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Stick around. The celebration is coming up, and I will be back here with you next week for the second half of our excursion into the science of our relationship with dogs that can only be found on the exceptional website of the National Canine Research Council. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. <laughs>